Hello, hello, welcome to the Java STEM podcast. Today's Zoom is going to bring a totally new chapter to the Java STEM gang because we've had the pleasure to have bright young minds who are scientific researchers, startupers, coordinators, but never an Olympian. Iris Yen is a two time US National Chemistry Olympiad qualifier, being in the top 20 in the entire states, a three time National Science Bowl qualifier. The team was placed fifth in 2019, and she's also a math and canvas, having successfully participated in numerous scientific competitions. Also, each summer, 80 of the world's most accomplished high school students gather at MIT for the Research Science Institute, known as RSI, and Iris is an RSI 19 alumna. She's also passionate about STEM outreach programs, and she's also an advocate for women in STEM. So hi, Iris. Thank you for coming on a podcast, and welcome. Thanks for having me. As I uh, mentioned in the beginning and the intro of the podcast, you are a two-time U.S. National Chemistry Olympic qualifier. And I'm interested here to get to know your story. What does it take to be an Olympiad? How did you embark on this journey? Yeah, so a couple, I guess a couple parts to the question. So first, how I got interested in chemistry. So uh, originally, both of my parents are chemists. So I definitely grew up with a lot of that sort of conversation and influence around me when I was little. And uh, starting in around eighth or ninth grade, I started getting interested in studying chemistry more. And so in the 10th grade, I uh, took the, the first exam in the series of exams, which is the local exam. And then um, after that, basically uh, how the selection process works is there's a local exam and then um, based on your scores from that exam, you can qualify for the national exam. So that's like the USNCO, National Chemistry Olympiad. And then there's three parts to that exam. So there's um, part one, which is multiple choice, part two, which is free response, and part three, which is a lab practical. And so based on those scores, they'll select uh, 20 students to go to the study camp And so my sophomore year and then uh, the year after that, my junior year, I was placed in the top 20. And so I spent two weeks in the summer um, at a pretty intensive study camp. And then basically where the process goes from there is um, out of the study camp, they choose top four to go to the International Olympiad. If I understood correctly, you went mm-hmm. through this rigorous selecting process and then a top 20 scoring students are chosen to attend this camp. And yeah. you said that it was pretty intensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean by that? How much did you have to work on a daily basis and, and learn new stuff or practice your skills? Yeah, for sure. So uh, when I was preparing for camp, it was definitely a lot of just um, reading on relatively broad uh, different chemistry concepts for example I read like some organic chemistry textbooks and some general chemistry textbooks and did a lot of practice tests and for me I that sophomore year so the first time I made camp I think uh, I was definitely spending at least probably around two hours a day on the weekdays and probably more on the weekends uh, just preparing like reading, learning, and doing practice tests. And for me, I think it was a lot of just uh, time and dedication that you need because uh, unless unless you're like really, really naturally insanely talented, it just takes a lot of practice and experience to kind of develop like this intuition of how to solve problems. And then um, at the camp itself, so that's like a pretty intensive experience because generally how the structure works is um, 
we'll have like a three or four hour lecture in the morning, uh, a break for lunch, four hours of lab in the afternoon, a break for dinner. And then in the evenings, we'll either have um, one of a series of exams and those exams they use to pick the top four for the international team or we'll like review exams or like discuss different problems or things like that. It requires a very focused effort. But as you said, Mm -hmm. that before the camp, you've Mm -hmm. had, you know, years of experience, years of preparing. You see the camp as a tip of the iceberg, but there's a lot of determination and effort put into the whole process to really be on the top. I guess you've sold tons Mm -hmm. of papers and past exams, but do you remember mm-hmm. what has been the most challenging question or problem you've yeah, come across sure. during your years of experience? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really recall like a specific one because there's definitely like an infinite number of questions that are out there. And it's interesting because there's a clear distinction between questions that are just insanely difficult to the point where they're just almost bad questions because they're just so hard to solve. For example, on one of our camp uh, exams last year, our uh, mentors, we were supposed to have like the NMR like spectroscopy readings for some of the molecules, but they just like left them off the problem completely. And so we were just trying to like guess what was happening. Like they, it was like an organic reaction scheme, but they didn't give us like any of the information we were supposed to have. So like that was just like impossible to do. But there's definitely like um, other questions that are just like really, really challenging. For example, um, one of the like quintessential most challenging problems out of like the international like repertoire is from um, I think the 2014, I want to say, exam in Moscow. And it's like basically where you have to like guess the kinetic reaction mechanisms for a bunch of different reactions and I have to this day not figured out how to do that but that's probably one of like the most complicated ones I've seen yeah it's really interesting that you brought it up I wasn't sh- sure that it was in the field of chemistry but I heard that I think it could be applicable here as well that mm-hmm. Russian math tests are one of the hardest ones <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's like definitely the like the same because where the international competition is held changes every year. And so sometimes like when my friends and I are doing like practice exams, past exams, we're, we're like, oh, this one's from Moscow or this one's from China. Like it must be extra hard or something like that. So, yeah. So if you want to go yeah. extra hardcore, you do the Russian method. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've accomplished being in top 20. I'm really interested. How did you feel when you finally received the news that you belong to that group? Yeah, actually, so the first time um, the in my sophomore year when I got the call, I was actually at the airport on the way back from the National Science Bowl competition. So, like, I knew they were coming out. Actually, no, no, they came out a day earlier than I expected. And one of my friends texted me and was like, hey, did you get the call? And I was like, what? Like, what call? Like, it's not supposed to come until tomorrow. Like, oh, my gosh, what is happening? And so I just sat there like waiting for the call, like for an hour and a half. And then right as we were boarding, they called me and I was like, I like started crying and like, oh my gosh, it was so emotional. But like, I was definitely really happy because um, that sophomore year, I'd put in a lot of time and a lot of effort into preparing for this. And this was like my big like stretch goal, you know, like if everything were to go right and I were to qualify for this, that would be like so amazing. So I definitely like that two hour flight back from DC, I felt like, like I was on the top of the world. Yeah. That's amazing. And no one can take away that feeling from you because you yeah, know the sure. best how much you worked to earn that. Mm-hmm. You are doing many interesting stuff and that includes the National Science Bowl. Now, mm-hmm. I watched 
question. I think many of us have been curious mm -hmm. to, you know, click on the heated science championships on YouTube. And you are a three-time National Science Bowl qualifier. So how did mm -hmm. you and your team prepare for answering those rapid-fire questions? Yeah, so uh, generally preparation for Science Bowl, especially at the national level, uh, consists of two different parts. The first is like subject coverage. So that would be like reading, you know, learning more information. And the second one would be like buzzer practice. So that would just be like getting faster. So for us, uh, especially like with my team last year at the regional level, pretty much like we are team generally had enough cover subject coverage already so like we knew most of the stuff there so practicing for regionals it was just definitely just trying to get faster and then leading up to nationals we studied a lot more like in-depth stuff we did harder questions and uh, one of like the main components that we instituted last year were these things that we called marathon practices and so basically what the layout at uh, national science bowl or nsb looks like is um all of the middle school competition is on one day and all of the high school competition is on the next day. So as you can imagine, there's, you know, 60 plus teams there. It's like a very intensive day of competition. So the morning and the first part of the afternoon are round robin. So there's generally like seven or eight rounds of round robin. And then the top 16 teams will advance to double elimination. And then double elimination is just after dinner, just like bang, 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 like one round right after the other. So we had marathon practices, which were essentially just like all day practices to just try to like build up that stamina in order to compete well, especially into the night, like for double elimination rounds. Wow, that sounds pretty intense. And you had this continuous build up to be mentally mm -hmm. and otherwise prepared for the competition. Now, when we are thinking about the preparing process, did you feel that strengthening your relationships with your and your friendships with your teammates helped you being better together as a team? Yeah, definitely. Because um, honestly, I feel like especially by like those late DE rounds when everybody's just like exhausted and like my brain was literally like so dead. There was a question that like essentially the calculation came down to like, what is three times three? And I buzzed and I said 12. And I like never realized that like I never realized why I got it wrong until like two hours later. And I was like, huh, yeah, that's not what three times three equals. But like essentially just like by that point being so tired and so like emotionally and mentally strained that like if you don't have team chemistry and team synergy, then like it's really easy just to like fall apart, right? Because like everybody's going to make mistakes. And so your team should definitely be there to help support you and help like make you feel better when you do make those mistakes. And that's how like you get through those later rounds just as a 20th century modern philosopher Hannah Montana said nobody's perfect <laughs> but yeah it's, it's so true that you need each other because when mm -hmm. someone falls you will help your teammate to be mm -hmm. back in the game literally and be on fire for the buzz around had experienced high levels of anxiety and you know try, yeah, guess, sure. trying not to concentrate on the external environment because you have to get into the right kind of headspace and mindset to mm -hmm. be of your game. Hey guys, coming in with a little STEM shout out that goes to a Brazilian mm -hmm. page. Now, pardon me for my Portuguese, Yo Cientifici, which is an initiative of a young Brazilian scientist, Victoria Ventura, arises a page on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, for this sure. young woman did scientific research in high school. However, she dealt with many structural, mm -hmm. financial, and psychological difficulties mm -hmm. due to the school situation of many schools yeah. in Latin America. Going to national and international affairs such as in the LISA, 
made her discover、mm-hmm. a new world, and yeah, she wished that more Latin、yeah. young could occupy these spaces. She finished high school with a dream for the future: to develop a network、mm-hmm. of laboratories for young scientists that have a good structure, support for writing articles, and yeah, psychological support as well. She asked herself the question: Today, how can I begin to put this dream into practice? So she created these pages and social media、mm-hmm. yeah, to so, disseminate the opportunities. Yeah, so I guess we'll start off with some differences. So Olympia, there's a couple of different kinds of Olympia. So for example, I do chemistry Olympia and other universities. Math Olympia, biology, like astronomy, physics, computer science, all these things. Imagine the beginning that it's a new kind of chapter for the podcast. I know、mm-hmm. that you did research, but you more invested in the Olympia. We mentally created a Venn diagram. What are some differences and similarities between Olympiads、uh, versus research and science fairs? I guess we'll start off with some differences. So Olympiad, there's a couple like different kinds of Olympiad. So for example, I do chemistry Olympiad, and there's other people that do math Olympiad, biology, like astronomy. Uh, physics, computer science, all of these things, and so generally, these Olympiads are、uh, more or less like a broad knowledge of like one one type of quote unquote pure science, right? So essentially, like biochem, physics, things like that, and it's just like undergraduate level theory slash like lab skills, and it's just like、uh, the category of science as a whole, if that makes sense. And whereas research is like very, very, very in depth knowledge of like one application of one of these categories, and often like research, in my opinion, is more like immediately relevant to the real world, for example. And it's definitely like a lot、uh, involves usually like a lot more interdisciplinary aspects. For example, like some of the projects I've done are like bioengineering, right? So it involves like some organic chemistry, some physics in like a biological setting or something like that. Whereas Chemistry Olympiad is just everything is like virtually centered around this one theory, and、um, definitely in comparing like competitive success in Olympiads versus science fairs,、um, Olympiads there's no like presentation aspect. You know, it's very like test based.、Uh, ver- whereas like science fair, a lot of it is about sharing your findings, making sure your judges like understand what you're doing and things like that. And、um, similarly, like along these lines,、uh, Olympiad is definitely just. You know, like these, like few exams every year that essentially like determine how far you make it, versus research as this kind of、um, long-term project, so to speak. So, like, there's definitely like costly setbacks. Like, for example, if like this test doesn't work, or like you mess up this procedure, and that sets you back, you know, like a week or two weeks in your timeline or something like that. But Olympiad is definitely just like all of your studies and preparation. Like, nothing really matters besides how you perform on that one day. So it's like. I don't know. Like from my perspective, it's a little bit less of like an all or nothing because for science fair, you know, like you do have a timeline right before you like you have to submit your paper, your proposal,、uh, and things like that. But it's less of like an all or nothing kind of thing, if that makes sense. Then,、um, so for similarities,、uh, I would say that both definitely, obviously, involve like very high levels of science, just like in two different ways. And there's definitely like a lot of problem solving and ingenuity that. Is involved. So for Olympia, that would be like you know how do you problem solve for like this specific problem that you're given, and、um, for science fair, it's you know like how do I 
develop like this novel approach to do X or do Y. Really interesting and intriguing what you've been sharing because what I see and what I hear from your perspective is that research is this focused uh, perspective, this microcosmos, we can say. And then when it comes to Olympiads, mm-hmm. you have to be knowledgeable in different fields. You have to know the facts. You you got to know the data and how to link them together, but in a more um, broader spectrum. That you experience is both of, both of the fields because you got to taste what each of them really looks like. When you started your first research project, was it like a, a shocker in a kind of way? Did you have to adapt to that kind of mindset or was it as easy relocation? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I definitely, I think I tried to keep an open mind going into it, just like not really knowing what to expect. I haven't, uh, before RSI, I really haven't gotten the chance to do like a so-called like comprehensive um, like research project. I've like worked in a couple of labs just like during the summer, you know, but I never really uh, had the opportunity to like do some sort of like long-term project that I could like take to science fair, for example. I feel like the one of the main changes for me was definitely just like this uh, contrast between having such like a broad scope of questions, you know, that could be asked in Olympiad versus this like narrower, just this one facet of one type of science kind of thing that's more involved in research and um, I think it's interesting because at that point when I first started doing research I hadn't participated in the study camp yet so I had like virtually zero hands-on lab experience so that was really interesting because up until that point my experience with Olympiad had always just been um, definitely just been with like theory you know and like studying and doing questions and uh doing research was seemed like this whole other world of like hands-on kind of like science and experimentation and your first exposure to research you've already mentioned uh, the three words rsi mm-hmm. you participated in it and it's in mm-hmm. an honestly an impressive accomplishment because it's really hard to get into you expand on the rsi experience and share mm-hmm. your project which you've been working on and the most mm-hmm. Moments of the week. So basically, what um, RSI or the Research Science Institute looks like is uh, one of your application essays is about your um, subject interests, essentially. So mine, I wrote about um, chemistry and like nanotechnology, and then my second secondary subject interest was biology. And so essentially, um, the admissions committee and like the director and assistant director will match you with a mentor around Boston based on the subject interest that you express. And during the time of RSI, you'll have around four to four and a half weeks ish to do your uh, project. And your final product will be like a paper and a presentation that you'll give in front of um, like your tutors and your um, TAs and all of the other RSI attendees. And so basically that's just uh, like the normal week during RSI will look like um, mentorship. So like going to lab from nine to five and then like a lecture or something else in the evening and then just like spending time with your counselor group and things like that. And so that's like the academic aspect of things. But the bigger aspect of it for me was definitely just like the people. So like there's trips, like um, we went to like Harbor Islands and then we had like uh, like a group dinner and things like that. There's also like a lot of really fun traditions I won't spoil for future RSI attendees listening. <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely like a lot of just uh, cultivating like a sense of community, a sense of like friendship among everybody there. Um is like a really really important part of that and you'll have like a counselor group and they uh you'll have like a bed check every night with them and stuff like that and there's just like a lot of time to spend together and uh, to bond with other people and like the most memorable moments for me are definitely um the times that I did spend with my friends especially like 
staying up late doing work kind of not really (laughs) you know just like spending time with them eating lunch with them things like that um so yeah that was definitely like the most memorable part of it for me and then um, my project so my RSI project like I mentioned before my interests were in chemistry and biology so I ended up with a chemical biology slash bioengineering project um I worked with professor Heather Clark at Northeastern University and what we were doing uh was essentially like a proof of concept of a new um, model for a biosensor. And so the biosensor that we were testing uh, is this thing called a microwire. And so it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just like a really thin wire that's whose size is like on the micro scale, right? So like, um, you know, like 10 microns in diameter, 30 microns, something like that. And so basically what my project was doing is we were seeing... um, if there was a good way to use magnetic properties to use magnetic properties as a way to like uh, test how well the microwire would work as a biosensor. So essentially what this means is that uh, right now uh, in the field of like biosensors, a lot of them are like electrochemical based, which means that there's going to be a lot of more or less like intrusive procedures. For example, like you'll actually have to like insert it into your body, you know, and then it'll like use like electrode indicators to measure concentration and things like that. And so what we were trying to do is develop a non-invasive model, which used magnetic properties instead. So with magnetic properties, since magnetic waves can like transmit through the skin and through the body, you're not going to have to like stick wires into your skin and things like that. So it'll be essentially a lot, um, a much less invasive model for a biosensor. And so we tested it with like a couple of different binding conditions and things like that to see if the magnetic changes in the wires could reflect like differing concentrations. So like if, and eventually we were able to find like in our preliminary studies, like an association between an increase in concentration and an increase in a property called magnetic susceptibility. And so basically this is pretty promising because if we are able to measure the magnetic susceptibility of the wire, then we can associate that with the concentration of like some sort of analyte in the body. And so that is essentially the principle behind biosensors. Measure ion gradients within the body without uh, actually mm-hmm. being in the internal environment of your system. After you finish the project, have you thought about pouring uh, more into the field of biosensors in terms of carrying on this bioengineering uh, yeah. project? Magnetic susceptibility sounds such an interesting field since it's not fully discovered and there's a lot of potential in it. Yeah, definitely. So I feel like this project... Um, really did get me interested in like the field of bioengineering research. So the projects slash labs I'd worked on in the past, um, one of them was like kind of related to this. So I did a project that was looking at uh, DNA nanostructures and how those could be used for like drug delivery. So like if uh, essentially like if you design DNA strands properly, they can make these little like Uh, nanostructures that have little cavities in them and so the cavities are like just the right size to carry you know like drug particles nanoparticles proteins things like that and so uh, basically this that past project and this project were both definitely really interesting looks into the field of bioengineering so like how can we use you know like chemical properties like hydrogen bonding or like you know protein bonding and things like that in order to um make some sort of impact like in a biological system whether it be through like drug drug delivery or like biosensors so yeah that's definitely something i'd be interested in looking at in the future so cool within the dna does it refer to when it's unfolded um in the chromatin form so it's more able to produce reactions 
Yeah, so essentially uh, how these uh, nanostructures work is like there'll be two like unwound strands of DNA. And so like uh, you'll pick the base pair specifically so that um, like it's kind of hard to say, like just describe with words. But essentially what happens is like organize or like pick the pairs on base pairs on the DNA strands so that like they'll hydrogen bond together. And so depending on which parts of the two strands hydrogen bond together, you can make like different shapes and stuff. And so that's how you make your nanostructures. Getting the right match for your DNA strand, but not on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> and you've mentioned the human and the friendship aspect of the part. And Anna Maria has already been on the podcast. It's so great mm-hmm. to see the RSI alumni expand on the podcast as well, because um, I know from experience and you guys have spent weeks together to form these relationships. They stick with you for a longer time, not just for the period of the RSI camp. It's a really good experience just uh, to be able to like meet people and just like stay in touch with them. I would say some of my like closest friends right now are definitely still uh, the people I met at RSI this summer. And it's just really significant to be able to meet like so many other young scientists that have done so much with their research already and just like see people that are like so accomplished and so driven. And that was just like a really good experience for me. Absolutely. And here comes another STEM shout out. What do you get when a group of RSI 2020 students are stuck at home after COVID-19 cancels RSI? A website that finds testing or screening sites near you in over 20 states and counting. John Lynn and Shruti Ravachandran contacted me personally, so shout out to them. And please let them know if you find a bug or missing close locations, they are still developing the website, so they appreciate any kind of help. Go to findcovidtest.com to discover more. Many listeners who might not be invested in research, they might be seeing these accomplished people who have already done so much. Are, do you think, some of the best ways to spark interest in others to truly discover the world of science? Students who are interested in science right now and want other people to get interested in it also, um, there's definitely a lot of ways to uh, lead and participate in different outreach initiatives. So for instance, um, I lead a couple of clubs at my school that go to neighboring elementary schools and middle schools and do different um, demonstrations in chemistry and in computer science. And so basically like this is just to uh, get kids' attention and expose them to science at an early age and get them interested in it. And so for example, for younger kids, I would find that uh, things essentially like what makes science cool is basically like just the way that it explains why things happen in our world just like in its very essence so for example if like in chemistry something that I find super cool and if I was like five years old I would find like amazingly cool is like if I pour two clear solutions together if I mix them together then like why does it suddenly turn yellow or something like that it's just that uh for me the selling point in chemistry was just that like these small molecules and atoms on this scale that like we could never really even comprehend that like it's so minuscule just them doing their own thing on that scale essentially like gives rise to macro level phenomena that uh, look like almost magic to our eyes. And that's kind of the uh, beauty of discovering and learning about science. And so that kind of um, essentially like designing or like introducing students to these kind of explanations and these kinds of phenomena are definitely a really good way to get them interested in science. 
That's so cool and I totally agree because children need hands-on experience and demonstration. I see a lot of problem in solely telling them the what problems but not really focusing on the why and how aspect mm -hmm. of it. Do you like engaging with little children because mm -hmm. they can be so gregarious and so filled yeah. with excitement? <laughs> yeah, it's I don't know, it's definitely like almost overwhelming at times but like if I really enjoy it because if you step back and think about it like they're just um essentially like they're so loud and overwhelming because they're interested about learning about science and I feel like that's really cool and something that's like really important just you know like for us and in going into the future is that we have this younger generation interested in science so that's something that's really important to me intensive but rewarding. <laughs> we recently celebrated mm -hmm. International Women's Day. A lot of articles were published on Mary Curie being the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and the only woman in history to ever win it twice. Uh, and Pierre mm -hmm. actually helped her in being recognized for her tireless efforts by the committee. Mm -hmm. And a lot has mm -hmm. changed since then, we gotta admit. But I'm interested mm -hmm. to hear from your perspective, what is a misconception about women in STEM mm -hmm. today that you would like to alter? So definitely a misconception um, is that women being a minority in a lot of um, STEM related pursuits, whether it be like Olympiad or, re or research, means they're like inferior or less qualified because that's just in reality not true. In fact, they're probably even more qualified because uh, essentially like what's happening right now is that with such like a predominant male majority in a lot of STEM areas, like women are essentially a deterred in the first place and b feel like they just have to like work harder to prove themselves in order to succeed and so um essentially like something that i would want to like correct is that uh for people and definitely for like younger women who want to like pursue stem that just because there's a lot of like guys doing stem right now doesn't mean you don't belong there um so essentially i actually talked about this a lot in my uh, common app college application essay but basically uh what was ha what's happening right now in the workforce is something called like a leaky pipeline so basically what it means is that there's a lot of women getting getting degrees in stem you know getting educated in stem but forever for whatever reason they're like dropping out of the workforce and they're not able to like sustain the same proportions uh, into like the actual job market. And so like one of the main reasons for this is this uh, phenomenon in the workplace that essentially like uh, one like word for it is like tokenism. So it, it means that a lot of companies are hiring women just to like satisfy some sort of like diversity metric or satisfy, you know, like criticisms that say, oh, there's like a disproportionate amount of men. But it's not really like for it's not really like a gender blind skills only based kind of process it's just like we're gonna hire some women because we need to and just like before i keep going like disclaimer this isn't every company a lot of companies are instituting like reforms that help with a bunch of these things that are more like friendly to women and things like that but just like sometimes it's just like an like small subtle reminders that like women don't really belong in stem uh basically like this phenomenon of like this leaky pipeline uh, phenomenon like what it shows is that there's just like women are just being hired just because they're women and for nothing else and there's not really a lot of things done to accommodate them so for example like there's tons of stories about women who like you know got a job in like a corporate industry but then once they had kids they couldn't like keep getting promotions or keep working in that job some like stuff like that it's just like uh, I guess essentially like a lot of environmental and societal factors that push women out of like this corporate STEM industry. And it's just 
essentially like portrays an image to other people and definitely to the younger generation that women just don't belong there but that's like something that I really want to counteract and just like a couple quick anecdotes from like my life um obviously I'm not working in the corporate industry but uh for example at like the U.S. chemistry olympiad camp you know like 20 of the top 20 chemists um you know like in the nation and then like if um essentially if everything were to go according to plan, there would be like, you know, 10 girls and 10 guys or something like that. But like in reality, what happens is that there were two girls out of all 20 people. And then, um, yeah. And so, for example, I like the physics Olympiad camp this past year. I know there was one girl out of 20 people, like one girl and 19 guys or like two girls and 18 guys. It's just like this really drastic, like gender disparity. Right. And like, it's just like the immediate conclusion is like, oh, yeah, they're just not qualified. Right. But like, is that really the case? You know, like I just like kind of fighting that like uh, perception of like girls being less qualified in STEM. And it's just uh, as a result, like the women that like are that do make it here, like do make it to camp or do make it in the workplace are essentially just given like a lot harder of a time, you know, just like to succeed. There's like um, like a pay gap, you know, things like that. Women just like have to work harder to receive like the same amount of like recognition because they have to fight this perception that they don't belong there the whole way through. Do you think that the disproportionate um, representation of women 18 to 2 and 9 to 1 were linked mm-hmm. to the fact that less girls apply or that perhaps the same amount of girls apply? What do you think, mm-hmm. like based on your own experience when you were at the qualifiers? I would say that probably at the very like initial level like at the local exam like fewer girls than guys but not by like that much of a margin you know and so I would say at that point we could attribute that to there's like a couple like girls or guys thinking like oh yeah girls don't belong you know in STEM or whatever I'm just not gonna go take the test right but then what you'll see is that as the competition progresses in like successive rounds that just like the disparity just gets like worse and worse and worse you know like at the national exam I would say there were like three girls and like 12 11 guys like taking it in my section and then like once you get to camp that just gets like even worse and so I don't I can't really pinpoint exactly what the reason is for like every person but I would say that even like for me having this like success as like a woman you know in Olympiad or whatever like I still feel like that pressure of being you know like one of so few girls and so that's definitely like a deterrent for a lot of people and like almost um I don't know I like read about this in psych but like this thing called like a stereotype threat right so like if you go into a test thinking or if you go into a test knowing that you know for example it's a science test and you have this preconceived notion that women are not as good at science as men then like your scores will be like significantly lower on that test if like you weren't told that it was supposed to measure science or like, you know, like something that would reflect a gendered ability. So I think that it's definitely just like really interesting to see like the effects of that perception because it's not like super clear. We know that X percent of people are deterred, but it's definitely just a really big factor. I would like to comment on a test note because it is so true and applicable. People act based on what they believe about themselves or uh, what others tell them. Psychology, there is a self-fulfilling prophecy that applies to this situation mm-hmm. as well that was discovered in the beginning of the 20th century so it's not that old but it really translates into an everyday life that mm-hmm. we're gonna act based on what we believe about ourselves that could be you know like our upbringing or what our classmates mm-hmm. have told us or our own imagination but it really does affect 
um, how we act. We yeah, start sure. applying positive reinforcement in um, elementary schools and telling girls that you can be a scientist, you can be an engineer, and I have this free open space environment and not having that pressure you've been um, really clearly expanding upon. But I think that the support of guys, like your classmates or your friends, teammates, whatever, can also make a huge difference. Entire notion of every, like, you know, like, hashtag he for she, you know, anything that's just like, uh, supporting women is definitely just like, really important. Because like, for me, um, what I feel is that like, if I'm in situations where like, you know, me being a girl isn't like a big deal. You know, everybody's just like hanging out, talking like their friends. I don't feel, you know, like I don't feel like the minority. I don't feel like, oh, I don't belong here. But then like take me to like another, I guess we could call it like a more toxic situation, right? Where like the guys are like being like exclusive of, you know, like the girls or something like that. It just makes it like a lot harder for you to like continue to believe like the same things about yourself has an effect of yourself and what you have to develop thick layer of skin <laughs> over time mm-hmm. yeah for sure. and new cells yeah by um, mitosis <laughs> what you do in your environment and overall is eventually encouraging girls and who knows maybe 20 years looking back um to where we are now we're gonna experience a huge difference and i hope that will happen by your efforts as well hopefully yeah getting into the inspirational department a little bit and that's why i'm interested to hear what is a piece of impactful advice you've been given and now would like to share with others two things i would like to share i guess so first um use your opportunities well and like make connections and just like whatever situation you're in just essentially like play your cards as best you can like remember like not to get too like discouraged or like oh I'm the underdog here you know I'm not gonna be able to succeed like don't you know like maintain that type of mindset just take like what you have right now like what has life given you what have like your circumstances given you and just like optimize it as best as possible like use it as best as possible like whether it be like in the lab or in life right for example if you know you're 10 month project just suddenly like goes to waste you know you're not gonna be like don't just be like you know what I'm done with science I'm done with research like that's not like a good mentality to have right definitely just like be resilient and be like creative with your opportunities it's definitely uh, probably one of the most important pieces of advice I've gotten just to like never really like suddenly give up on something without like doing everything possible that you can and always just like use your opportunities as best you can. And then um, the second thing would be that uh, science is like just as much about research and book smarts as it is about like collaboration and communication. And I think that's something that gets lost really easily just, you know, with this perception like from media or from whatever of scientists just like sitting in the lab all day sitting at the computer you know never talking to anybody when like in reality how we're going to you know fix a lot of these like societal problems how we're going to overcome a lot of these obstacles is by scientists working together and so just to never lose sight of this sense of community and collaboration that's like really really key to science just as much as actually doing the work in the lab is dropping the truth right there <laughs> we have to use our opportunities and one opportunity that is true for every single person living here is that we've all been given 24 hours every day mm-hmm. and we got to use it for mm-hmm. our own personal development and not just for ourselves referring to your second advice but we have to put it in a team effort have this kind of excessive mm-hmm. individualistic mindset and in research we know that it's not possible mm-hmm. without the help of our good research 
research buddies and essentially mentors and, and professors who we can look up to. If you could invite anyone to be your dinner guest, it could be living today in the past, right, who right. would that be and why? Yeah, so um, for me, I guess going along with this motif of women in STEM, you know, and pushing for representation and things like that, I would really, really love to talk to Cheryl Sandberg. So Cheryl Sandberg, um, as many of you may know, she's the uh, chief operations officer of Facebook. So like one of the highest ranking officials or um, people like in that corporate structure. And uh, she authored this book called Lean In, and it's essentially about Uh, like the role of like woman in STEM slash the workplace. And I really like the idea of like what she's done, just like an insane like work ethic and drive, like got her to where she is. And I want to see like how she used the opportunity she had to get there. And like similarly, like how uh, how she is a role model for a lot of aspiring um, scientists and women like myself. Like how could I do that for other people? So I feel like I would really, really love to do that. If you had really the opportunity to sit down together with her, what would be something that you wanted to ask her, like a like a burning question? Um, I definitely would want to know, like, I guess from like a pragmatic point of view, like how did you know, like what essentially, like what opportunities did you use, like how did you get to where you are? But secondly, like how does it feel to be like a role model and like a figurehead for this like feminist movement and like how do you like how does that inspire you and drive you to be better every day yes to get to know her secret (laughs) periodically this topic must come up on the podcast but what is your favorite chemistry joke slash pun obviously i know all the basic ones but i was like nah i can't say one of those so i looked this up last night i thought it was pretty funny kind of i don't know maybe it's not funny whatever so the punchline is, how did the chemist survive the famine? And uh, it's because he subsisted on titration. Because titration sounds like tight rations or like tight rations. Oh. I don't know. Ha, 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 Yeah. Drop the bass. <laughs> Just one I haven't heard before. So that's always fun. Yeah, that was new to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've never seen it on any Pinterest board, yeah. so it yeah. definitely earned the brownie points. <laughs> yeah. And this is going to be this or that game, and okay. we're jumping right into it with a chemistry question. So, organic or inorganic chemistry? Organic. Organic. You like drawing those hexagon benzene rings, right? Yes, yes. Lots of hexagons. Yeah, you must have perfected them by now. No, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at it. It's so bad. <laughs> Pizza or sushi? Sushi, all the way. A roller coaster or water slide? Water slides. Do you, do you like going to aqua parks and yeah. trying out new slides? Yeah, I love that. Me too. Um, Once, just a, a little, just in a bracket, when I was in Turkey... I was a little Mm -hmm. kid and you know how you have these slides and there is an excitement to to try out the new ones. You can like sit or um, lay down on the slide, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to get on a slide with my head in front and on my side. (laughs) (laughs) And while I was sliding all the way through and I hit the end point, almost ruptured my jaw (laughs) (laughs) and my tooth on front along the way. (laughs) 
And I get out of the pool, and my mom warned me not to go down in that position. And I get yeah. out of the pool full in blood, covered in blood, my whole face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom just turned her back on me. And uh, later on, I found out that she was crying because I looked so bad. <laughs> and yeah, I lost my teeth. Well, thankfully, I was, um, or my tooth, I was so small. When someone saw me in that vacation, they just told me that Tom Cruise had bad tooth overall. It was like, okay, <laughs> that convinces me. <laughs> Spontaneous or organized? Organized, all the way. Uh, power of invisibility or power of flight? Power of invisibility. You want to get to know what's happening behind the scenes. <laughs> and also being or organized, filled out any personality tests that you know yes. it or just by experience? Oh, um, so definitely I've, I always like dabble in that stuff in my free time, like personality tests and such, but I am just like generally a very organized person. Like I'll have to like have this journal thing that's like, you know, my schedule every day, to-do list, this is what's due today, this is what's due this day next week, you know, just everything is just like very methodical as stereotypically scientist. Yeah, yeah. not chaotic. <laughs> have you filled out the MBTI uh, test? Yeah, I think I have. I can't remember exactly what I am right now. I think I'm ESFJ. They're pretty organized. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Closing question that I asked from everybody, and it really just encapsulates this whole podcast and what we've been talking about, and that is, what does science mean to you? For me, science, in a nutshell, is a way for me to change the world and make an impact that's bigger than myself. And I know that sounds like super cliche, but it's just like something that I, like, I feel like I've internalized a lot. It's just that, like, what I want to do in life is, like, you know, like, make an impact that's just bigger than me as one person. And, like, I can do that through science, whether it be through, like, research, you know, like, discovering some new, like, drug delivery mechanism or something like that, or, like, outreach to younger people, like, inspiring this younger generation. I just feel like science, like, is how we can solve problems, like, for example, like, cure disease or reverse climate change. And, like, that's just really important, like, for me just to um, be passionate about that and inspire passion about that in other people just because like in the hands of scientists are the cures and the solutions to a lot of the problems we face as a society today and so science for me is just like a way to change the world for a better and make an impact on the world and it's really important that I as a person am driven to make a change and go after those goals and in turn inspire other people to do that as well. Definitely. It's just the out-of-the-box thinking and external outreach. It's it's never me, me, but others and, and pouring mm -hmm. into them. Yeah, and well, overall, the future of humanity. <laughs> Who are we kidding here? Yeah. <laughs> I believe that this conversation and what you shared in the podcast ignited the fire in, in many. And I hope that it will be transformative for the listeners. Thank you for coming and sharing all of those bits of wisdom. Them. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, 
Thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.